Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, y'all, let's get started here. We're looking at Seminar 11, Lecture 2. Today's date, Starlog. No, fuck all that. We're looking at Chapters 5 through 8. Um, I want to start with a bit of review from our last lecture, and so you have a sense of kind of where we're going tonight and the types of points from last time that I want to queue up. Um, where we started was with the same question that Lacan begins this seminar, which is, is psychoanalysis a science? The answer is yes, um, but it's not interested in objects and by extension objectivity. It's interested in openings in the field of what Lacan calls objectality. Openings particularly insofar as they serve as causes. The great tradition of philosophy for Lacan is that which would study causes. And the word for that we use is objectality. What we also said last time is that there's one cause in particular that allures psychoanalytic inquiry, and that is the cause of human desire. And the cause of human desire, no matter what you desire, is always the same. It is the experience of lack. In Lacanian algebra, this experience of lack has a symbol. You can symbolize this lack with a little lowercase italicized a. Little a symbolizes the experience of lack and allows us as Lacanians to talk about it. I would also like to suggest that this cause of desire, the experience of lack, is always a lost cause. And not lost because you can't track it down, but lost because it always suffers repression. The cause of human desire is always, in the neurotic subject at least, repressed. And as a result, searching for it does no good, which is why Lacan also says, as we talked last time, that his job is not to seek, but to find. The lost cause of human desire is to be found, not sought for, in psychoanalytic theory and technique. We also did some fuzzy math last time, worth reviewing here. One plus one, you know what it equals, three. One plus one for Lacan equals three. The reason why that is, is that in order to have two entities, or three, or a hundred, you have to have some minimum irreducible distance or difference between those two entities. So if you have a background and a foreground, that was the example we had last time of a pen and then the wall in the background, there has to be a minimum irreducible gap or difference or distance between the pen and the wall. I'm not talking about the space in between. It could just be as simple as the visual line between black and white. If there were not that third element, 
that minimum irreducible distance between background and foreground, you wouldn't have background or foreground. You'd have one ground. There would be no two entities. So in order to have two of anything, you need to have a third. And that third is the gap or the minimum irreducible distance between the two entities. This was one of the first ways we arrived at a definition of objea. The lack that is the cause of human desire is at some level a slit, a stroke, or a rupture, or a gap between two entities that is so basic to phenomenological experience that it's no doubt desire would be difficult for us to slip in life. We also talked about how this A, this third element, this space between, is also rooted in human subjectivity. We talked about this early pre-linguistic bio-animalistic state. It seems like folks who are interested in Lacan always want to talk about this at some level. What's there before castration? What's the experience of the infant in utero, during the first trimester, before language, what's going on there? You've heard me say, I think it's horrific. I think it's probably an experience of sheer horror. Lacan doesn't spend much time talking about it. The closest thing we get to a really nice definition of whatever the fuck that is, before castration, before language intervenes, is that passage I quoted you last time from his mid-50s manifesto on psychoanalysis. He calls it the here and the now of the all in a process of becoming, in the process of becoming. This is a presupposed, a priori, retroactive state of bioanimality. I say retroactive because it's only in the wake of castration. Once you are in the field of the symbolic, that anything like this here and now, this hic et nunc, shows up as something lost. In fact, that is the only experience we have of this pre-linguistic, bio-animalistic world that we know was there. Knowledge probably isn't the right word here, but it's presupposed by the fact that we survived enough to be admitted into the field of language. It is presupposed by the fact of castration. It doesn't mean we have memory of it. In fact, our only experience of this pre-linguistic state is as loss. I'm not saying that we had it and then we lost it. I'm saying that our relationship to it is always one of not having, which is different. I'm not saying you had it and then you lost it and then you spend the rest of your life trying to regain it. I'm saying the only relationship you will ever have to that state is one of not having as loss. It is not a lost paradise. Ideally, it would be a paradise regained in the experience of loss itself. Along comes the daddy. Now, you know, it's always tempting in Lacanian stuff to say shit like that, but we're not talking about 
the anatomical father. This ain't the bio dad. The name of the father is first and foremost, the know of the father. Regardless of what your first language was, regardless of what your first word was, the effect of that word was the same. It was prohibitive. The name of the father is first and foremost, the know of the father. What does it say no to? As we learned last time, the basic prohibition at the start of human subjectivity is simply a prohibition against any continuation of one's life without prohibition. That's what happens. The know of the father fundamentally prohibits any continuation of lived experience without prohibition. We talked about how this is precisely what the psychotic rejects. One of the basic conditions for the clinical structure of psychosis we've talked about is a radical rejection of this prohibitive moment, a radical rejection of castration. Now, again, I'll reiterate this. If you're curious about what the hell that's all about, check out our lectures on psychosis. They're on YouTube. There are about 30 of them. It's just reading seminar three on the psychoses. Um, plenty of stuff in there. We can come back to it here and again, but for now, I think it's just worth flagging. This know of the father that is affirmed as a bayaun for the neurotic is rejected by the psychotic and only partially accepted by the pervert. Bruce Fink has great stuff on these three structures and how they map out in relation to this basic prohibition. Now, what I want to suggest here tonight, because one of the things on our horizon is this split subjectivity that Lacan spends a lot of time talking about in chapters five through eight, the splitting of the subject. Um, once the no of the father has been pronounced, affirmed, negated, repressed, and so forth, these are the experiences that the neurotic goes through. The, the addressee of this prohibition finds themselves torn or split as a subject between bioanimalistic impulses that used to be the warp and woof of their entire existence as embodied beings and this new kind of existence that occurs not at the level of bioanimalistic materiality, but instead at the level of sociolinguistic practice. The split subject is always at some level a subject torn between their status as an enunciating being that speaks with a voice that emerges from within their body and a grammatical being that has another existence, a double life that occurs at the level of language. The split subject at a very fundamental level is split between bioanimalistic life and sociolinguistic being. Now, what Lacan's going to do in this seminar is he's going to really strip those down and say that you basically have a split between being, which is the bio-embodied side of your life, and meaning, which is the side of you that has identities attached to it, cell phone numbers attached to it, 
email addresses, home addresses, social security numbers, all of these identifiers, all of these signifiers from your first name to your last name and all the numbers in between, those are markers of our existence as grammatical beings. And in very real, real ways, these are disembodied sides of our lives. The split subject is always torn between these two elements. And again, you see this really pronounced in social media, especially at the level of the selfie. The picture that you post of yourself online is not the same as the person who's posting that picture online. In fact, it's usually when we feel hideous as embodied beings that we turn to Instagram in hopes of posting a better picture of ourselves and popping the like economy in our direction. There you see the split between your real life self, this embodied self, and this self that occurs in the virtual sphere at the level of social media. It's a pretty basic split. I think we're all pretty familiar with it. But again, one plus one does not equal two. There's a third element in the split subject, and that is the bar that makes that motherfucker look like a dollar sign. In order to have an experience of splitting spaltung, a spaltung between your bio embodied self and your sociolinguistic self, there needs to be this third element. Hear me, the minimum irreducible distance maintained between these two states of being that allow them to remain distinct. And now think of all of the sciences and mysticisms that promise to remove that barrier, to make you whole. And I would just add, as they often do, again. Lacan doesn't buy that shit. Once you've been admitted to the symbolic, once you have affirmed, negated, and repressed the no of the father, there ain't no going back. And if there is some going back and you wind up in the clinical structure of psychosis, it means you actually did not affirm, negate, and repress the no of the father. No, no, no. There are a lot of no's in little kids' lives. Maybe too many. Let's think about some of them. Weaning. There's some no's in there. No more nursing. In this moment, an object that the infant experiences as every bit a part of them gets cut off snipped off, X'd out, cast aside. It is a body part that is now off limits, the breast, the nipple in particular. In the process of weaning, you see prohibition starting to occur. And what happens in that moment is that some part of the corporal experience of the infant is cut off and cut out from that infant's life. Here, the breast becomes a no thing, something that has been inscribed with the word no, that has been prohibited. It's a no thing. Potty training, no more 
pissing and shitting at will. Feces becomes a no thing, a bad word. At what point in our lives did shit start to stink? When did you start to notice that shit stank? I wonder if that predates potty training. Now, you might say, yes, of course. Everybody fancies baby shit don't stink, but come on, I've changed enough diapers to know that's some of the most ruthless shit in the world. Yeah, but that's you. You've been through potty training. You've been taught and told like the rest of us that shit stinks. Feces becomes a no thing. Now, if you've got ears to hear what I'm doing here, as I'm fleshing out the first of the two fundamental drives, the oral and the anal drive, we'll get to that later in the seminar, I expect, but the oral drive has a partial object around which it circulates, a no thing that has been cast into the black hole of objea into that field of lack, not to go away, but to become instead a great source of drive, of motivation. Now, I'm not saying that if you've got an oral fixation, all you can think about are breasts. No, because what we know about people with oral fixations is that they live their lives in relation to all sorts of metonymic stand-ins for the breast. The breast becomes the pacifier, becomes the thumb, becomes the straw, becomes the fingernail that gets bit, becomes the cigarette that you started smoking, becomes the cigarette that goes well with a drink, becomes whatever other oral items turn you on, get you going. These are all partial objects that are anchored in a fundamentally corporal part or organ that was originally rendered nothing. And I want to be clear about that. The no things that get prohibited at the stages of weaning and potty training and language acquisition and so on. They don't just go away. They're thrown into the bottomless pit of the cause of desire. And they don't just go away, even though they can no longer be seen. They then become the motivational ingredients for our lives. See, you don't even know that by smoking, the thing you've tried to quit over and over and over again, unsuccessfully so, you're actually working your drive. But not in a productive, self-compassionate way. Here, the drive looks very much like what at root all drives are, which is a death drive. The maladaptive experience of the drive is something that Lacanian theory and technique are designed to help you around. To traverse one's fundamental fantasy is to find a way of keeping the drive alive in a productive, non-maladaptive way, which might just include quitting smoking. 
Language acquisition is just one more space where the child experiences some of these no's. The no of the father that says, no, now you have to speak like a proper young lady or gentleman. No more baby talk. No more whining. No more babbling. Use your words, which of course is why we use the term alienation here. Because it's not your words that the paternal figure is asking you, commanding you to use. It's theirs. You hear parents say, use your words. But in fact, what they're saying is, use mine. Stop doing that dumb shit that you've been doing and start doing this shit. Here, what you might say that is the partial object that is cut off, cast out, and thrown aside, it might be the cry, the child's voice and the voice alone. Not a voice that would be paralanguage next to speech, but a voice alone at the level of the grunt, the cry, the inhalation, the exhalation that now becomes subject to repression, a no thing. You can cry, but you better damn well be able to explain why you're crying as soon as you're done, and ideally in the midst of it all. That is one of the prohibitions that comes with language acquisition. My point here is that at each stage, to the extent that you even buy any of that stage shit, oral, anal, so forth, something is left off, left out. Something, if you want to be a little more arch with it, is left to be desired. Something is rendered lacking. Now, last time we figured this as a set of sorts. And you'll recall what we were looking at here. The set in question was one that would have this no of prohibition, it would also have something that comes with it. Here's our little A, lack. The way that we configure this is that the no comes in like an incision. The act of cutting. What is produced, and anybody who's had a cut knows this, is an opening. The incision into your skin, here, let me pick a scar instead. The incision into your skin produces an opening. And that's how we're working this. The set that we're talking about here, and I'm gonna put brackets around so that we can actually have it in front of us is a set in which you have the cut that leaves a very specific mark, looks a lot like the number one. It is a slash, a stroke, and in turn produces an opening, a zero, a space in which nothing is represented. That's important here. What we said last time was that this mathematical set of sorts is the cause of human desire. This is, as precisely as we can say, 
the experience of lack. It's to experience these two moments together. The minus phi of castration plus the resulting experience of lack here represented by this little a. You'll notice also why Lacan makes a big fuss about the unbegriff and the un in front of the unconscious. At issue there is not the German no or non. In this seminar, what's at issue is the French un, which means one, the unary trait that is well captured in the experience of the no of the father shows us that un, that one. So if you want to think about this in a way that is, again, kind of with some fuzzy math, we're talking one plus zero. But remember, one plus zero also equals three because you always have to have this third element. Now, how does that work? Because wouldn't that be a multiplication of little a? These differential relations populate Lacan's thought. He's always thinking threes. But remember, to be a good Lacanian, you always wanna be able to count to four, not three. You never stop at three. Maybe you never even stop at four. But I think if you can count to four, you're doing pretty damn well. Think about it this way. The cry that breaks the silence in the room, creating a noisy foreground and a background of silence, always is going to have some third element in there that allows those two fields to remain distinct. Here's what I want to push on. Little a is not just the cause of desire. It's, according to Lacan, the object cause of desire. It's an object and a cause. It's a cause that serves as a certain type of object, not a regular object, a different kind of object, in part because it's an opening. It's not a thing in the world, a positive entity sitting on your bookshelf. It's an opening. It's a lack. It's a space known as a gap. It's a sight of nothing because nothing is there. Zero represents nothing. But also because, and here's the key term, the whole that this zero represents is full of no things. All of the corporal elements, the bodily organs that are chopped off cut off, placed under erasure, repressed. They don't just go away. They get thrown into this bottomless pit of the cause of desire in this field of lack. They're all right in here. This is where the no things go. And you can imagine how this would play out. How were your no things thrown into the whole of your existence? If that time you accidentally peed your pants, your mom responded by locking you in the bathroom for two hours 
in piss-soaked pants? If that was your experience, as it was for a dear friend of mine, you might just have some potty issues growing up. There are ways that no things can get carefully placed into that hole of nothingness. And there are other ways when they get thrown in too violently. The boob isn't just pulled away from you gradually, consistently. It's pulled away from you dramatically. Maybe because while nursing, your mom died and suddenly that shit stopped. Suddenly being the operative word here. There are traumatic ways that prohibition can occur. Sometimes the no of the father does not have a period behind it, but instead an exclamation point. You've heard me talk tonight a little bit about the condition of possibility for psychosis. This is one of the conditions of possibility for perversion. When the no of the father tends to have an exclamation point behind it, when it's unpredictable, when the rationality of the law pronounced by the no of the father gets confused and tangled up with the jouissance of the lawgiver, you oftentimes have a recipe for perversion. Breast, feces, the cry, other body parts, the voice, the gaze, these are all no things that get cast into this zero spot only to emerge later. So again, one way to start thinking of this little a is that it's a bottomless pit, a black hole into which no things are thrown. And in disappearing into this void, these things become nothing. But like the nothing that is the real and jouissance wandering errantly through the field of the symbolic, they don't become less powerful. They become more powerful. They drive us more, not less, when they pass into this zero zone. And I want to emphasize here again that all of these no things are body parts. They are corporal scraps of flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that in the process of weaning, your mom cut her fucking breast off and threw it down a well or fed it to the dog or whatever the fuck type thing you might imagine. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a symbolic enterprise. The X goes over the breast doesn't mean that your mom now has a tattoo of an X across her nipples. You walk in on her when you're 15 and she's got her shirt off and you see two big X's tattooed across her nipples. Fuck no, that didn't happen. The experience of prohibition in that moment is the shame you feel, the embarrassment of having walked in at the age of 15 that you would not have experienced at the age of one. We're talking about a symbolic enterprise, and that's the truth of castration. It is a symbolic enterprise. No one's actually operating on anybody's junk. This is not a physical enterprise. It takes parts and elements of physicality and symbolically absences them, renders them no things, 
prohibits them. Two points and then we'll take a break. These no things, as you heard me say, they morph into all sorts of other objects. Shit, if you had potty training problems, can become money that you obsess about. Dirt on the dishes. Books lined up perfectly on the shelves. Things that need to always be in their place. Graffiti artists who love leaving their tags everywhere. Little pieces of themselves everywhere. Here's an anal fantasy. Now, would you tell them that their tags are shit? No. You think that stuff's awesome. It's amazing. It's art. But the truth of it is, is that it is a transfiguration of feces. What drives the graffiti artist is the shit. That part of them that got cast haphazardly, perhaps, down into the hole of the cause of desire known as objet. Again, more on the drive later. One of the things I want to suggest, though, before we take a break, is that the hole in this set of castration, this experience of lack, this little A, into which all these no things are thrown, when coupled with the primordial no at their origin, this minus phi, I would suggest that this is another way to think about the split subject. And I want to end with a picture here, take a little break. That'll allow us to visualize this a little bit better. You've seen the image of the split subject in Lacan's work. It looks something like this. Now I'm using the green here, not to get you thinking of dollar signs but it is there. What I would suggest is that one way to think about that set we were just looking at, which to my mind, I don't know that anybody else has figured it as, is to think about it as the basis for split subjectivity. One part of the split subject is this highly embodied experience of castration symbolized by the minus phi. And the other part, you guessed it, is little a. The split subject's bio-animalistic side is also going to have a sociolinguistic component. The experience of lack all told is a combination of these two entities. And so we can have something like a split subject that maps on to this existential set. Now let's take a break there. We'll come back in a few minutes, answer some questions, see what else is on your brain. And then we're gonna dip into the topics of repression, the return of the repressed, and this other fancy R word, repetition, that comes up in chapters five through eight. And this is where I think we're really going to get the payoff for the work we've been doing tonight. 
Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.